Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network Podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome, everybody, to the Nurse Leader Network Podcast. I am your host, Chris Racinos. And today we're going to be talking about the struggle because the struggle is real. It is super real. And today we have two amazing guests, two amazing nurses that are going to talk to us about their journey from RN at the bedside to their business that is up and coming. And then we're going to talk about some of the struggles they had along the way and how we can overcome some of those struggles. So fasten your seatbelt. We got a lot to cover in today's episode. um, And we are so glad to have you here. Today, I'm going to welcome Karen and Antra from RNAgate. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Antra, did you see how she had that music that she just clicked the button? One day we're going to be like that. (laughs) She's pretty smooth. I know. Fancy. Super duper fancy. (laughs) My better headphones are plugged in somewhere, too. (laughs) Yeah. When we first started, I didn't know where to plug it in. So I just wore them for show. Oh, that, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes we do. We do. What we're here to tell you folks is that, yes, it is. We all start somewhere, right? Like we all start somewhere. And then we look back and we're like, holy smokes. Like, how are my children still alive? How is my podcast still functioning? And how, you know, did my patients walk out of the hospital? I don't know. Um, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and we'll introduce each of you. Andre, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us about Renegade and you, and then we'll hop on over to Karen. So my name is Andre Boyd, and I was an operating room nurse for 20-some years. I did um, about eight years in the military, so the United States Navy kind of grew me up as an OR nurse. And then I went on to work at a community hospital in about a 10-suite OR. And from there, I decided to stop bedside nursing because there were just so many gaps in how we cared for patients. And it was frustrating to change healthcare on the inside. You know, I was very much about team and collaboration. And in the OR, you get all of that because you have to. But there were still just silos of care where patients would, you know, suffer poor outcomes because transitions were fraught with miscommunication and poor teamwork. And I just felt like I kept spinning my wheels. So I decided to get into patient advocacy because I thought, well, if I can make outcomes better one patient at a time by helping somebody navigate healthcare, then that seems like something that that I could do. So I left bedside nursing. I started um, a business called Connected Care Patient Advocates with another nurse colleague of mine. And we've been in business for five years. And it's really, really fascinating to walk alongside someone who's, you know, dealing with cancer or autoimmune or any, you know, really chronic condition and see just how much of a a struggle it is for patients to get through the healthcare system. And then with COVID and the pandemic, it's been, you know, it's even so much harder. So then halfway, well, halfway into my business, I got diagnosed with rare ovarian cancer and kind of navigated that fairly well. Um, I had Karen by my side and, you know, lots of nurse colleagues who kind of helped me navigate. Cause I'm telling you, you get a diagnosis like that. And as you know, good as I thought I was at, at, at navigating healthcare, it all flew out the window. So yeah. it was really helpful to have people like Karen in my life who, you know, could slow me down and say, listen, 
Like you're on the urgency train and you're not going to die tomorrow. Whoa, girl, get off the urgency train, (laughs) right? Like things that you don't, as a patient, you wouldn't know, like you hear the word cancer and it's like, I'm dying tomorrow. How could he book my surgery three weeks out? That makes no sense. You know? And it took Karen to be like, girl, you're fine. You have time. You can figure this out, you know? And so, um, really super helpful and navigated that fairly well. Um, and kind of thought, you know, they took it out. I had a huge, you know, gyne surgery. They took everything out and I kind of went on my way. And then in March of this last year, I was re-diagnosed with a, another, they're calling it a reoccurrence. And navigating it this time has been a little bit more difficult <laughs> emotionally and mentally, I will say. Um, it's been a very interesting summer for me. I've done a lot of things to kind of, uh, deal with sort of some of the past trauma and just really like working and I guess trying to get real with myself, having a real relationship with myself. And it's kind of, um, now leading me to surgery in a couple of weeks, another big surgery. So, and we're launching renegade, (laughs) like, you know, let's just do it all. Uh, and it's super exciting because Renegade is a like a, um, a sort of a baby that Karen and I are birthing together, <laughs> right? And we always knew we wanted to work together. And I'm going to let her take over and kind of talk about how that got started. And then we can dive in more if you want. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Uh, we're definitely going to dive in. So just hold that thought because we will be right back. But Karen, love to hear your story. How'd you go from bedside to our Renegade? Huh. I became a nurse because my mom told me to. Mm. I yeah, my mom and her twin sister were nurses, and I wanted to be a writer. And um, I remember walking down the beach with them. What are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, I kind of want to go into you know something like journalism, whatever. And they like looked at each other. Karen, we love the way you write, but you know everyone looks forward to your emails and your letters. But in order to make money as a writer, you have to be a really good writer. Wow. <laughs> Oh, mother of the year award, right? But she was not, but she was a supportive mother and that was (laughs) the backside of her support. You know, I want you to have a life and not worry about money and not struggle. And so that's where that came from. But, you know, at that time, wanting my mom to like me very much, (laughs) I became a nurse, but I, I thought regular nursing. So I went into, it was only going to be ER or ICU because also at the time I not only wanted my mom to like me, but I wanted the rest of the world to think I was extraordinary. So if I was going to be a nurse, I was going to be a super nurse. Like I wanted people picturing me coming toward them in slow motion in an orange flight suit and an Aerosmith song playing in the background, you know, with your hair in the wind. Yeah. Hair in the wind. Had to be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Big fans. Um, so yeah, so went into ICU and, and I was no dummy. I mean, like I, I was, except for math, (laughs) Andre does all my spelling and math for me. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I went in ICU and then dabbled and, you know, I, I traveled and did, you know, trauma. And then actually my first ICU job, I was hired as the youngest flight nurse for Southwest Air Ambulance. Wow. And I had, yeah, I had lots of adventures and lots she, of She like totally skimmed over. She's like, you know, I was just the very first youngest nurse. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, that's a whole nother story that would take another hour how that happened. Um, but it was mostly because the nurse manager of Southwest Air Ambulance was, he also was my preceptor uh, oh, in my cool. first ICU job. And uh, I think he was more, 
more impressed with my balls <laughs> with with my metaphorical testicles than um than actually my skills, but you know, they matched up. Well, and I that's how they're impressed with those two all along. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh so then I like Antra um saw all the like, why are these people keep coming back here? It's the same people over and over. And and just seeing that people with a healthcare professional, either if the patient was a healthcare professional themselves or that they had a healthcare professional in their family, they had better outcomes. Shorter lengths of hospital stay, lower morbidity, mortality. The families knew, hey, could you watch your poopy hands, change your gloves, um, swab that port before you and you know put mm-hmm. some medicine in it like all those little things how to ask for a second opinion how to know okay i don't i've heard about that surgeon i vetted him no when is the next general surgeon going to be on or is there a hospital close by that we can transfer to like they knew that stuff i just didn't think that was a fair so i thought there's got to be a job there's got to be some kind of profession that if people didn't have a healthcare professional in their family they can hire the nurse in the family so I started my patient advocacy business. I went to the same program that Antra did. Actually, we met because I became adjunct faculty on that same program. And that's how we met. But I'll tell you what, I thought I was going to go to this just to le- learn the, the business and legal ins and outs of becoming a private patient advocate. But it was that was 10% of it. It was functional medicine, systems biology, epigenetics, nutrigenomics, all the stuff that they don't teach in med school certainly not in nursing school, about root cause, how to find the root causes of illness, what's going on globally that, you know, that they're doing to treat heart disease and cancer and whatever that we don't, we've never even heard of here. Yeah. Um, and I was fascinated. It was like, I, I, I often compare it to like going into that program, thinking the world is flat. And then someone just holds up a satellite picture for eight days, like, oh my God, just total paradigm shift. So I, at the same time I went through that program and was starting that business, was having my own health crisis. Um, I had basically dementia. Like I, I brain fog so bad. I carried a sticky note pad around, called it my external hard drive because um, I couldn't remember anything. I lost the end of moments. The most illustrative moment was when I went to the mall with my three kids. I had a two, a four, and a six-year-old. And I woke up at the mall not like out of a sleep, but just like came to. And I was like, there's my three kids. How did we get here? I couldn't remember dressing them, getting in the car. Couldn't remember driving to the mall. Like I had no short-term memory. Got off the phone with people and did I hang up on them? Like, who was that? And it was all the time, but I hid it. I hid it. Um, And I had chronic Lyme disease, systemic yeast overgrowth, chronic fatigue syndrome, because of all those things. We'll look, uh, maybe fibromyalgia. We don't know, like all these. I was 37 year old. Oh, and I had had an eating disorder for 27 years that had almost killed me a couple of times. So, but I hit it because I wanted people to see me as an extraordinary person walking toward them in slow motion with an Aerosmith song playing, playing in the background, you know? And Later, years, years later, I realized that it was that people pleasing that need to be extraordinary and be liked. That was making me sick. That was constant fight or flight, stress response, breaking down my immune system, whatever, that constant friction in my nervous system. What do everybody, what does everybody think? What does everybody think? That was making me vulnerable. Anyway, the 
puddle of snot and tears moment when I learned my favorite prayer. Can I swear her? It's my favorite prayer. When I was like, <laughs> I'm like, you don't it. gotta ask me twice. <laughs> well, I'm like, that was my favorite prayer. I was like, fuck it. I'm not doing this anymore. Cause I had been so sick, you know. And then I went into studying radical remission because that's what happened to me three weeks later. All my symptoms were gone. Wow. Um, then I went into coaching. And so I did pri- I did patient advocacy thing too, but I'm like, what, what happened there? And then also helping other people see where their chinks were in their armor, what was running them down. Uh, and then I did like publish research about it in 2017. It's in the APA journal, uh, Spirituality and Clinical Practice. And uh, then our renegade was just because my license was due. And I was dread, actually it was overdue. And I dreaded <laughs> doing my CEs because, you know, CEs, you know, the boring, outdated, <laughs> uninspiring, <say>. inconvenient, <laughs> shizzle, outdated, just uncool stuff that we have to do. And I was putting it off, putting it off. So I am on a hike listening to a Joe Rogan podcast with James Nestor. He wrote a book called Breathe. And that was two hours of information that I was like, I loved his story and I loved his information and the anatomy of breathing and how it changed his health around. And I'm like, I was, this is not only going to make me better at my job, but better at life. Mm-hmm. Like, why was that not worth two CEs? And so we made our renegade. So stuff like that would be worth continuing education that we were doing effortlessly already that was inspiring us and making us better at our jobs and better at life. So our flagship offering of our Renegade is the our Renegade podcast. There'll be a, there's lots of other stuff coming too, but you can just listen to innovative health experts, pioneering nurses, visionary leaders. You know, just really cool humans. Um, yeah, you can do it all from you know your yeah. phone with some headphones on. You can do the laundry. You can cook dinner. You can drive your car. Whatever, right? Like when you're listening to a podcast, then you go over to the website, take the do the activity, and there's your CE. Karen just renewed her license and had to get all these um, CEs and literally were on a Zoom call. And this was like, I don't know, a year ago. And she's like, look what they sent me. And it was a DVD. No, it was a CD copyrighted. So you couldn't download it. I couldn't even download it to my phone. I had to sit at my desk and listen to six hour lectures. Oh, that sounds fun. I don't even have a CD player. Like if they sent me a CD, that I, thing is going to, my kids would, uh, oh my gosh, we were driving. I had the to other buy day. a CD player. Yeah, We were the, driving the other day and we have a car that's not old. It's like 2014. And my son was sitting there and he's like, mom, what is this in the car? Cause it's not one that we use very often. It's my daughter's car. And I was like, what is what? And he's like this, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's a CD player. He's like, what is that? Like, oh yeah. my God, it's like an A-track son. That's what it is. <laughs> Basically, yes. That's hilarious. Remember the yellow Sony sport Walkman? Oh yes, I do. He asked me, where do we get CDs? I said, I don't know that you can any. I don't know. I have no idea. Meba music? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I think you can rent them at the library. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. Send them to the library. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about like self-compassion and, and, you know, kind of self, is this just self, all of these different things. And it's so coincidental because literally right, like 15 minutes before I was telling Antra, before we started recording, I was doing some like Peloton and then I did some meditation and the meditation is called radical self-compassion. And the person was talking about that as a society, you know, we are trained and ingrained that we are not enough that we are just not enough, right? So at two years old, my daughter's sitting here singing and she thinks that her sound is the most beautiful sound ever. But then, you know, people will give her dirty looks in the store because she's very loud. She's like her mother. 
or, you know, her brother will say, shut up. You sound stupid. Right. So little by little, like she's being ingrained that this beautiful voice she thinks she has is actually not other people don't aren't as receptive. And as a society, we do that. And then we go into this mode that you were in, which is constantly trying to prove ourselves. Right. No, I am enough. I am good enough. So we could talk about that for days and days and days. But I just thought it was um, coincidental and interesting to think about for me, that's real quickly. It's, it's, I didn't want to be left behind. I had this like fear of being left behind. And then I made up, okay, in order to not be left behind, people have to like me. And then I made up what the world said I ought to be. So in order for people to like me, I have to be thin. I have to be pretty. Mm -hmm. I have to be smart. I have to be witty. I have to, you know, I have to do all these things. And then all the things that I thought I had to do to check all those boxes. So, so many people are walking around in their heads, checking boxes and they don't even know it. It, it, that for me, it was like, that's just what it felt like to be Karen. It wasn't until I popped out of it after I learned fuck it prayer. (laughs) It wasn't until I popped out of it that I saw how I'd been living my life and how it was making me so sick under constant Mm hypervigilance. It's for a trance. what people thought of me. It's like a trance that you live in. And we assume that if we check those boxes, it's going to bring happiness and self-love, not understanding like you have to have self-love before you can be happy. Yeah. Um, There's always going to be another box. But and I, but I also think, too, that like it, it, it is that because, you know, you can find the cause for cancer, you know, whether it's whatever, you know, whether it's toxins or whether it's suppressed. For me, I really think it was suppressed emotion, like spending my whole life not feeling anything and, you know, showing the world that there's a strong, you know, I call myself a shield maiden because I have nine younger siblings and I spent the entire, my entire childhood and teenage protecting them. So like, I'm not going to break down and cry. I'm not going to feel angry. I'm not going to feel any of these things because I don't want the world to see that I'm hurting that this, you know, but whatever the reason is for cancer is that can you still find joy in your life? Like in spite of, and so, you know, I've really been thinking a lot about, you know, focusing on what I want, which is, I want, you know, to have a great outcome. I want the cancer to heal. I want my body to heal, but also, and Karen pointed this out to me the other day, and I I have known this for a long time, especially in working with Karen, like, what if, who are you even in spite of all of this stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, like I've had all kinds of health problems and they were, I, I really exacerbated them by my thinking about what it meant and who I was. And, and the minute that I could drop those things, like I'm 40 and I'm fit and I eat well, why do I have hypertension? This doesn't make any sense. And then I just stew on it and think about it more and more. And, and the hypertension would just get worse and worse and worse. But the minute that I learned, like, no, like, what if I just ignored it? What if I said, fuck it? <laughs> I mean, she basically taught me that prayer. And then <laughs> like, I, I'm i on one medication and I don't ever think about my blood pressure anymore. And in spite of that, I can still feel alive and have joy, right? And so I think it's true, even with cancer and the struggle that I, I'm going through now is it's hasn't been fun in, in a lot of, for a lot of it, but also like, I can also see, that we, we can be okay and fine and, and in love with our lives in spite of. Yeah. Could you walk us through like where you were at, what was going on in your life when you were first diagnosed? I, where I worked previously in a, in the span of like maybe two years, we had, um, 
it, we had probably, I don't know, it was like maybe six or seven executives on a not, you know, it's not hundreds of executives, but on six or seven executives that uh, ended up being diagnosed with cancer that year. And, you know, we all kind of like try to figure it out. Like, is it because we're stressed out all the time? Is it, um, but you know, I, I look back now and it's been probably about five years since their initial diagnoses. And I see some that are like completely thriving despite it. And I see some that, you know, are not. And so I'd love to hear your journey around, like, where were you at in life? And after you were diagnosed, what did you do to continue moving on? I mean, like you've had this diagnosis and you keep moving on with your advocacy business. You get re-diagnosed with it. You're moving on with Renegade. Like how, how are you promoting that resilience or how are you putting this lens on of I'm not my diagnosis and I'm going to keep moving on with my life. So I guess we'll start with, you know, talking about when you were first diagnosed, where were you at? What were you doing? Oh, I was super busy and I was engaged in, you know, my business and, but I was very much like, I mean, there were moments that, you know, Karen and really Karen, I mean, I have to say, I can't really think of the impact that Karen has had in my life has been so astounding. But um, so there were moments where I was able to slow down after that diagnosis and figure out what I wanted to do. And I got really busy. But that was kind of a pattern my whole life, like head down, let's get busy. Let's figure this out. Like, and in a lot of ways, that's great, right? Because, because I can complete a project, I can finish a business and start it and, and carry it on. But for me, it was let's get busy so I don't have to feel. Mm-hmm. It was coping, so I, a coping mechanism. Totally. And it looks normal in adulthood, right? Like if I am super busy and I'm running here, starting this business, starting that business, working with this patient, like it looks normal. Like I have a functional life, taking kids to this soccer game, going to this gymnastics meet, whatever. Like it, it so society agrees with you. You have an amazing life, a happy marriage, right? Like all of these things, but it was just a way for me to suppress how I felt. And I suppressed how I felt about that diagnosis. I think I had maybe two or three meltdowns and then I just got busy and went on. But, you know, I started a business. I, I, I went on, I, you know, kind of never really forgot about cancer, but it was sort of the sub-level anxiety of, well, I got to fix it. What do I got to do to make sure it doesn't come back? And so I was busy kind of behind the scenes doing naturopathic, functional systems, biology, medicine, and, and not really paying attention to what was really going on. And so um, the second diagnosis was devastating. And I think I started to go down that road. And I was in Colorado doing some um, acupuncture and some energy healing. And I had the biggest fucking meltdown of my life after a long conversation <laughs> with Karen. Karen. <laughs> I hung up the phone at two in the morning and it just, I mean, I was on the floor in a pile of snot and tears till eight o'clock the next morning. And it was the first time that I was like, Oh, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not paying attention to me, like what's going on. And so I spent the entire summer really digging into this, um, you know, I could start to see this, these, I, it feels like threads from my childhood of 
where the trauma started. For example, I've had headaches my whole life. I've had them since I was a little girl. When I was five, I got bit by a dog and I was with a babysitter and my parents weren't around and they couldn't be contacted because it was in the you know 70s and there were no cell phones. And I felt so alone and so abandoned by my parents. And I was like five and I can see and I've had headaches my whole life. And so I could see where they started and I could see every time I had a headache, was I feeling alone? Was I feeling unseen? Was I feeling abandoned? Right. And so it was all of this kind of stuff to really like know myself better, I think. And, you know, it's, it's been, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's been, um, it's been really painful at times. And I feel like I'm, you know, on an emotional roller coaster. Sometimes I'm feeling okay. And then, you know, two minutes later, I turn into a sobbing mess on the floor. But I do feel, I definitely do feel more in touch with myself and who I am and who I want to be and what decisions I want to make, not, not, you know, what the world tells me I should do. And there's lots of voices, you know, I got lots of voices saying, you don't need surgery. You can, you know, heal this naturally. And a lot of voices say, no, it's the only thing to do. And like, no, I gotta, I gotta decide for me. Like I gotta shut out all Mm -hmm. those voices, well-intentioned, right? People care and love about me. They want what's best for me, but I got to find that answer and Mm -hmm. I got to do what's right for me. And, you know, I mean, I can't imagine staying on the floor on a pile of snot and tears forever. Like I just, I, I that just doesn't seem like an option to me. I mean, it, you either get busy living or you get busy dying. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, it sounds so. like there's, I mean, it sounds like there's two things. It's two themes are emerging for me. So one is like finding your tribe, which it sounds like you found in Karen. And so we're going to div- dive into that in a minute, but um, it sounded like the other was really like this self-discovery. Like what, I mean, I know for myself with my story, like my self-discovery really started when I lost my daughter, right? I, I began to realize what was really important. And the whole time I had thought it was something else and um, was sorely wrong. And for you, it sounds like the second diagnosis really was kind of your beginning or, you know, finding of self-discovery. What were some of the actions that you took to begin to really start to get to know yourself and begin to identify like the pattern with the headaches? Like, was there meditation or what did you do to kind of begin to, we all have that like need to really understand how our past show up in our present relationship. So how do we begin to even do that? Well, I kind of just followed my intuition, which was so crazy because I mean, the summer you, I couldn't make the story up. It was so crazy. Um, I tend to be somewhat of an impulsive person. And when I found out that, you know, I had this going on and that it wasn't just in one place, I was like, I got to do something right now. Like that impulsivity of like, I got to fix this immediately. So I got on the phone with a friend of mine in Colorado and she was like, you've got to see this, this, this Chinese medicine doctor in Colorado. So I hung up the phone, booked a plane ticket, and then spent the rest of the summer in Colorado um, doing acupuncture and Chinese medicine. But along the way, I met a a woman who um, is a practitioner of German new medicine. And it's a fascinating study of that our bodies biologically adapt to the conflicts in our lives. And so cancer, from this perspective, can be seen as a biological adaptation to in my case, ovarian cancer is lost. And I lost my mom in 2012, tragically. And it clicked for me. I was like, that's fascinating. And so I, I, um, I signed up to do some coaching with her. And she gave me this questionnaire that was basically like, tell me your life story on paper. And it was fascinating because that's when I saw, oh my gosh, I have disassociated from myself 
my entire life. And I could see the patterns. Like when I got date raped in college and I told my friends about it the next day and they said, well, you need to see somebody and you should report it. And I was like, no, why? And I picked myself up and just went on. I never, ever had a feeling about that incident, even though I was drunk and woke up with somebody having sex with me. Like I didn't ever feel anything about that incident. And I could see all along after doing all of this writing. So it was just such a gift because I didn't spend a lot of time coaching with her. I saw it all myself. Like it was just this, you know, beautiful story laid out. And it just, it was just stunning to see like, oh, all of that stuff did have an effect. It is what it's like to be me even now, right? Like what it was like to be me back when I was little is still affecting what it's like to be me now. And I just found that so fascinating. Like I just, and it was, and I was able to go back and have some, some, you know, feeling about some of those situations and that trauma. Like it, it, it was just, it kind of just totally opened my heart. My heart was so closed and I just didn't really feel anything except for a lot of negative. And then when I started to feel these feelings of joy and, and, you know, passion, like to start renegade, it was like, what's happening? Like, I, I like, or the joy of my daughter, you know, remembering her when we'd go and see Winnie the Pooh at Disneyland, just that feeling of joy. Like I had totally, I, I had forgotten yeah. all of it. So it, it was a, it, it's been a very like, um, it's been a very uh, continuous summer journey, but also, you know, uh, there have been these pieces where I've sunk back into the rabbit hole. Oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Oh my gosh. What if I have to have a colostomy? Oh my God. You know, like, and up in my head and totally freaking out. But you know what? I wake up every morning and I, you know, tell myself what I'm grateful for and what's going to make the day great. And, um, and I pick myself up and I keep going. Yeah. I think when, when you're going through whatever it is, that's tough for you. Like we, we think like it hits us, right? Like, and it's like a ton of bricks and we like melt down and then it's like a wave that gets pulled away and then we can breathe and we come up for air and then we're walking and we're playing on the beach and we think everything's great. And then that wave just hits you right back and you're like not expecting it or prepared for it. And, and I think a lot of us feel like failures when that happens, not realizing like that is normal and natural. It's mm -hmm. like the way that we process grief as human beings and it's totally okay. Um, I mean, I, I think you brought up another point too. Like you have obviously some really traumatizing things that have happened in your past, just as I have, just as sounds like Karen has mm -hmm. that being said, a lot of us compare one another to each other. So I know I have listeners out there today that are like, well, I didn't have anything that bad happen to me. And the problem I think that we have as a society, not just in nursing, is that we compare ourselves to others. So I shouldn't have these problems because I didn't have that background. Um, and so I just want to make sure that the listeners that are listening are not getting into that bad habit of comparing what um, we're sharing with your experiences in terms of how it's impacting you, because it could be an experience that was different than ours and traumatized you just as bad. So give yourself the space and the grace to, um, to really recognize that things that maybe you are trying to compare yourself to um, could have, you know, major impacts in the way that you're living your life today. I, I think the question that's really, really, really curious is what is it like to be you? Yeah. Because, you know, for everybody, it's different. 
right? And so anybody listening to this, that's the question to ask themselves. What is it like to be me? It has nothing to do with, you know, oh, well, my situation isn't as bad as hers. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it like to be you? Yeah. And that question has just like opened up so much for me. Well, I have, so I want to ask you, the other topic that you talked about was like having kind of your tribe, right? Which was Karen. Karen, what were you like, like, okay, so if this is, you know, a situation that we find ourselves in, whether we're the one that has the circumstance or whether we're the friend that's supporting it or the colleague or whoever, like, what does it look like to show support for somebody who's having some, something happen in their life? Like, how do we, how do we be that support person? How do you do it? How did you do it without burning yourself out? Uh, I think it's because I, because of the things that I've been through, I know fundamentally that it isn't the environment or the situation that's causing that person distress. It's how they are within that environment. Because, I mean, here's a very small example. Um, it's a silly example. But it, it's a good il- illustration of how your total mood and experience of something can change in a flash of a pan. I was, <laughs> I was uh, taking it's the first day of school. I had slowed down the month before because we had just moved. I was getting my kids ready, drove them all to school. My outfit was gray fuzzy socks sh- crammed into black sparkly flip flops. <laughs> uh, Victoria's Secret sweatpants and I'm five one. So they're too long for me. So they were light pink, but the bottoms were all dirty and tattered. They like, matched your the socks. Best, okay. You were matching. Not the, the best look. <laughs> um, yeah. A tank top, no bra. Oh, I had a little shelf. Right. But you know, you can still see the THO. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I think I might've put my hair in a clip. Like that would be the most I bothered. Drove him to school, walked into Starbucks. And that's kind of when I woke up to, Ooh, Maybe this isn't the best look to be out in public with. <laughs> Got my coffee, went back home, walked into the door, and there is the Himalayas of dirty dishes. And I have no work because I slowed everything down from the move. My kids are gone. I have no friends because we just moved. I have no work, no friends. All I am is this disheveled domestic <laughs> loser and then like it was i like had a little breakdown like Aww. felt like i'm all alone i have no friends i have no work i'm a loser and all of a sudden because this is what happens to me that wakes it's like an alarm like this and i don't even try i don't look for it it just now wakes me up it's like okay you're really you're a freaking hot mess right now ding 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 what do you, what, how are you being in this situation? And then all of a sudden I'm like, hang on a second. I have no kids here. I have no work. I have nobody, no lunch dates with people. I don't really want to go to lunch with just because I'm <laughs> trying to, you know, like I could watch a movie. I could write. I could, I could just sit here and look what I'm wearing. It went from, oh my God, look what I'm wearing to, oh, look what I'm wearing. <laughs> Nobody cares. Like in a flash, I went from the lowest low to how grateful, how lucky am I to be here right now with all this time and all this potential and all this possibility. Nothing about my environment or my outfit changed, but my entire experience changed. So when I support somebody or like when I was talking to Antra, I 
when she first called me and she was like, Oh my God, da, 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 what, you know, it's going to be quick. I don't remember what you said, but it was like, Whoa. Cause I could see it was the urgency and the pressure she was putting herself under that was bringing her the fear. Like I love it. Anita more Johnny. Uh, she wrote a book called dying to be me. If you haven't read it, you really need to. Oh, I'm going to check it out. But her, she battled lymphoma for seven years and she, uh, multi-system organ failure. Her family's about to discontinue life support after seven years. She has a near-death experience. And she saw that in her one sentence to explain it, cancer was a symptom. Fear was the disease. So when she had this near-death experience and she saw that there's, I was putting, I was believing not in who I truly was, but in who the world told me I ought to be. That's where my shame and my fear, and I'm always going to get it wrong. And I was, she was so afraid of getting cancer that she did all the stuff, hypervigilance about getting cancer. And it was that constant fight or flight stress about what are people going to think of me? And am I going to get cancer? That was actually creating, the fear was creating the environment for cancer. And when she saw that, she woke up from her coma and everyone's like, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, and she said, it's gone. It's gone. Even though she still had <clears throat> golf ball sized lumps all over her, she knew it was gone and the cancer was gone. And I think it was 30 or 60 days without further intervention. Wow. And that sent me down, you know, another radical revision rabbit hole. But, you know, it's where's their fear coming? Where's the misunderstanding about this situation coming from? Because I know that all you have to do is tweak one thing. I mean, I had a friend when I first experienced, I was grieving. My heart was breaking. And she just said, how do you know that that feeling in your chest isn't gratitude? Because you know what? Heartache and extreme gratitude kind of feel the same. If you think about it, that tightness in your chest. And when she said that, I was like, it, I thought blood was going to shoot out of my nose because my aorta exploded with just such <laughs> gratitude that I got to feel that for someone instead of, oh my gosh, I'm never going to ever feel that ever again to, yeah. oh, how lucky am I? I got to feel that for someone like that. And so seeing it for yourself first is the best way to know that that's what's going on for someone else. But yeah. As I said, and I'll just stop here because you guys entre kind of it's and before anybody takes marriage vows to someone else, it should be I, Karen, take you, Karen, to be my forever love. Yep. I promise to be true to you. Because you can't give that away to somebody else unless you have that for you. Doesn't for yourself. isn't it Demi Lovato that says like I have to take <clears> care of my heart because it's the only one I'm guaranteed to have till I die? Yeah. And and you can't give it away to anyone else unless you have it yourself. And actually, you don't have to have the right words because if you have that for yourself, people feel it off of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what the meditation I was watching was today. They said, she said that fear really is, comes just from a place of self-doubt, right? Not feeling enough. Not And when you begin to love yourself, like everything literally falls into place. People begin to feel all that love that you have inside of you. She talks about like this Buddha that was found and the Buddha was covered in like clay and plastic and all of this stuff. And it had been there for centuries and somebody decided to start picking at the clay and, and underneath was the biggest gold statue of boo 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 that exists and she says that's kind of like us as humans we forget sometimes that we have that gold inside of us and instead we become the plaster and the clay that's wrapped around it It it's like so enlightening but it totally matches up to what you're saying so 
how do we find a Karen if we need a Karen in our life? I just need to know. Like, one eight hundred. I need a Karen in my life. <laughs> you definitely need a Karen in your life. No, I well, you all have a Karen in you. That's the gold Buddha, right? Within, there there's only go. one. There's only one place to look. You know. Oh my god! It's the same thing. It's the Karen you're referring to isn't me. It's it's the thing looking out of your eyes at me and out of my eyes at you. Yeah. You know, it's, and that and that's totally been what this journey's been about is uncovering all of that clay and you know craft that that is has been layered over me and seen and you know I mean I think this is a is a lifelong journey whether the you know no matter what happens to me but I can see I can see the light now where I couldn't before the summer. Oh. Okay, don't make me cry. Um, <laughs> I feel like every time we get together, like, I just want to talk to you forever. Like just move into the house. We could be roommates and we could just nonstop talk. Um, we'll have be the three old ladies that lived in a shoe with all of our kids. Yeah. Um, and we can paint our nails like coral orange and go on cruises look together. Look at this. What? <laughs> coral orange. <gasps> yes, yes, Excellent. yes, we could. For those that can't see, I have coral orange nails right now. Um, <laughs> But okay, so tell me what's on the agenda for Renegade. I mean, you've, you've gone through like all these tremendous struggles, still in the midst of these struggles, yet you have Renegade getting ready to launch. Tell me about when it's launching, where can people find it, what exactly um, are y'all looking for? Yeah, I, I would I would say it's um, it's a secret. It's under <laughs> it's an it's an undercover, it's undercover consciousness. You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we want people to get CEs because, you know, doing what they love and left effortlessly getting inspired and learning really cool new stuff and innovating and whatever. But really, we just want people to get exposed like you, I'm sure. You know, Chris, it's like you want people to hear from these people. I mean, like, you know, we're so inspired every time we get off a podcast, just I'm not excited because a nurse can get a CE for that. I mean, that's cool, too. But that's an afterthought. I'm so excited for people to hear from this nurse who you know, she was a dancer and she had, what's the name of it? Entra L EDS syndrome, L hers, Danlos syndrome. Yeah. And she, now she's a nurse on a floor in a wheelchair. Wow. Like, and she never gave up. She never said no. And then she has so much to say about like my ignorance, my a- ignorant ableism that I wasn't even aware of, you know, uh, and, and just, she's just fascinating, but there's so many of them. So I'm so excited for people. It's October 5th. It's launching, and I'm just so excited for nurses and anybody to listening listening to these inspiring stories that just make you want to be a better person. If if they want to find out where they can find our Renegade, where where are they going to look? Where, where so they're going to they're gonna go to our website, which is um, www.rnegade.pro, and they can peruse the list of the the first set of podcasts. There's ten of them. And they can get to listen and get a CE that way. Oh, nice. And our social media handles, I will um, send to you via email. <laughs> we'll put those in the show notes. So if you are yeah, on Spotify okay. or Apple, you can go ahead and take a look in the show notes and you will have their contact information there. So there's a podcast. There's more coming out. There'll be more coming out every week in a bit. You know, once we get our workflow done and lots of different courses by Renegades. I mean, people who are teaching things in a different way and saying things differently and saying, saying shit you've never even heard before about health <laughs> and innovation and whatever. And it's like, our minds are blown constantly. Yep. 
Absolutely. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, thank you, ladies, for your time. We're going to have to get you back on. And once we have Renegade is up and running, I want to hear all about it. And uh, this has just been great. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. For <laughs> Thanks, having Chris. Fun. All right. Good to see you again. You too. Bye. 